Hello, Urbit fanatics, and welcome to a special episode of Zero K, the podcast where we talk to some of the people building Urbit, the decentralized operating system for the next 500 years. Today, our episode is a special conversation between Ted, aka Rob Nysrick, for aka the CTO of the Urbit Foundation, and Ilya from the Near Protocol. So, Urbit and Near have partnered to build a client for uh, Near's blockchain operating system over the course of this summer. So, we've entered into a kind of partnership with these guys, but this is kind of the first that I've heard uh, an in depth discussion of Near. So, it's been a Great, uh, great listen here. So uh, in this conversation, they talk about the origin story of Near, kind of where, where they came from. Uh, they also talk about what unites the two projects, which is this uh, emphasis on usability um, for both the developer and the user. So this is something that in the decentralized space, let's say, is a, I mean, it, it's pretty clunky. So I think both Urbit and Near are, are kind of targeting this. And so You'll hear a little bit more about that, and then you'll also hear kind of about what the future uh, could possibly hold between these these two. So it's a great listen. I think you'll enjoy it. All right. Hello, Ilya. Hello, hello. Thanks for inviting me here. Thank you very much for joining us. So I thought I'd start by asking you how you got into Nier, how you started it. Um, because so you were in one of the authors on the original Transformers paper which led to ChatGPT and this whole AI revolution that we're experiencing now. Uh, so how did you go from that to crypto? Yeah, uh, so pretty much I was working at Google Research. I was uh, working across natural language understanding, but uh, kind of deeply rooted in me, I always wanted to teach machines to program. And uh, the kind of I saw an opportunity to uh, go start a company to do that. So we started Near AI first. And Near AI was really teaching machines to code, right? So in a way, what GitHub Copilot is right now, uh, except we did not have Microsoft money or, or GitHub. Uh, <laughs> and, Many such cases. And so, um, so we were needed to be smart, right? And so what we ended up doing is trying to find places where we can get especially students to do data labeling for us um, so we can get a more uh, clean data set to train models. And uh, kind of the people who you know, would do that and proficient developers that are students that are looking for extra income usually are from developing countries like China, Russia at the time, Ukraine, Poland, etc. And with all of these countries, there's actually a money trans like transmission problem between US, where our company was based. The students also sometimes don't bank have a bank account. Uh, PayPal doesn't work in some countries. TransferWise doesn't work in other countries. Yeah, my dad has this problem. My dad teaches remotely in China quite a bit. Uh, and uh, he lives in the US. And so these universities in China try to pay him. And they have a lot of trouble. It's all legitimate. It just doesn't work very well. And so we ended up starting looking at blockchain just to solve our own problem. It's like, how do we pay people and make it automated, program it, make it really effective and efficient from our side? We were like three people startup, right? And so starting looking at Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know, your usual journey in Web3. Yeah, what year was this? This was uh, like uh, 2018. So okay. already like everything crashed, you know, hype uh, kind of started to die down, which is a good time to come in. And so, so we were looking around and you know we were paying like 10 cents per task you know 5 cents per task 
And so, you know, transaction fees, which were even back then were already like 20, 30 cents, were not realistic for our use case. So, so we started looking around to like other blockchains and other layer ones, didn't find anything that would be like, you know, kind of, you know, coming from a distributed systems background, from like algorithms background, nothing that would like fit what we thought makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and we saw opportunity to build something that is like truly scalable, but more importantly, actually usable for developers and users and really kind of enables more of this business use cases, right? Not just kind of uh, money transfer, but actually like true business use cases on top. Yeah, it's interesting. So we had a similar problem at Urbit. So uh, the original Urbit public key infrastructure was not on chain. It was just, the idea was that you'd use an escrow agent to sell an Urbit address, like selling a house. And that we just accepted that there would be Byzantine fault problems with this. Is sometimes people would double sell, it would just be a problem. Um, but then it turned out we really needed to go on chain. Like you really do want a blockchain for managing assets. So we went on Ethereum uh, around 2018, thereabouts. And then you know, not that long after getting on Ethereum, the prices, the gas prices shot through the roof and suddenly it cost $200 to join the Urbit network. Uh, so nobody got on the network for a year. And it was, it was really tough for us. We ended up having to build a layer two to get the prices down to something that was manageable. Um, and uh, that took a lot of engineering effort, it has its own trade-offs. So you know, we're okay now, more or less, you know, but uh, that was very rough for us. So I, you know, I sympathize with what you're saying here. Yeah, we should, well, we should discuss uh, you know, uh, that in more in depth. But. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so you had this problem. And so how did you go about fixing it? Yeah, so, I mean, coming from, you know, distributed systems, like any distributed systems, right, they worked with any company that had any scale, the, the name of the game is parallelization, right? You run stuff in parallel, you have more machines, so as you add more users, as you add more load, you can add more machines and it scales, right? Yeah. Like, that's how Google works, that's how Facebook works, that's how, you know, WeChat, like, name the app, uh, they all work the same. And it was really interesting to see that in blockchain, that's not the reality, right? In blockchain, it was, you add more machines, it usually runs slow. <laughs> right. Yeah, because you just have to inform Co those machines yeah, about the consensus. Yeah. And yeah. So, so our first kind of you know, order of business is, okay, how do we parallelize things? And so from that perspective, you really need to figure out a new paradigm that actually goes from, well, if everything is in parallel, how do you actually build applications that way, right? Because, and, and we see this right now with like layer twos and cross layer two communication. When things become kind of parallel and, and layer two to each other are parallel, you know, layer ones to each other are parallel, it's actually a different paradigm because it's asynchronous. You don't have atomic transactions anymore. Right, because one layer two might update, the other one doesn't. And there's nothing, yeah, in, there's nothing backs, forcing them to yeah, go together. Exactly, right? yeah. Or there's yeah. rolls back, or, or there's like latency, or it doesn't deliver the message, and you need to re, re, rerun and replay it. Right. And so, uh, so we focused on, and at the same time, for the user, this is a mess, right? Like, if you need, like, oh, am I, do I have fees and Optimism? Like, do I have an account in Optimism and Arbitrum? Do I need to send money between them? Like, do I need to bridge into it? It's like, so what we wanted to do is, like, how do we achieve this parallelization, but hide this complexity from the user, yeah. right? And so again, if you think of it, you know, you go to Netflix, it doesn't tell you like, hey, the server is, you know, busy, pay more money. Or it doesn't right. tell you like, hey, you should select another server and watch another movie because yeah, this movie right. is right now is really busy. 
right? No, it just like scales up, puts more servers in, and processes it for you. Yeah, and, like, it just works. Yeah, it just works with completely transparent. And so that's what we're aiming for. So we build a sharding design that can actually scale with the, like, with the demand in the network, and kind of as more capacities needed, more validators are required for the network. And at the same time, it's completely hidden from the user. Right, as a user, you still interact with one blockchain. You have accounts somewhere on one of the shards, but you don't need to know about it. And you, know, you yeah. interact with other applications. Now, there's a little bit of trade-off there, which means all the applications are communicating asynchronously with each other. Yeah. But we guarantee that the message will be delivered in the next block and, and pretty much enable this like, really kind of fast cr cross-chain communication where every contract and account is, quote-unquote, its own chain or shard. And so all of this is packaged, you know, hidden. As a developer, you just send messages, which is actually very similar to normal yeah, web, like, like web writing a web app. Yeah, you, yeah, everything's asynchronous on a web app too. Exactly. Right? Yeah, that's so fine. Like People all of the stack is asynchronous. So, uh, so that's kind of the idea. And then, and then we really focus on latency because we believe, you know, if you want to achieve mass adoption and mass market, you need something that is truly kind of fits, you know, web two experiences. And so we focused a lot on one second block time. And we actually want to make it even quicker. And so to do that, we pipeline the consensus. So a lot of the consensus messaging, which, you know, in things like Tendermint and, and things uh, uh, like you actually wait for response from other nodes. Here you send messages always forward and kind of like pipeline things uh, and allowing to have, you know, one second block Next block, uh, you know, in normal circumstances, already receives con like achieves consent, like pre pre commit consensus, and then block after, you know, you have BFT consensus in, in okay. normal situation. So stuff yeah. like this allows to have like really quick finality. So you said that what what is the finality like? In, so like so we we like you can pretty much two second finality, which if somebody like, will be slashed if this is double sign, and then. Uh, like after two seconds, like you know, the third second, you have BFT finality. So like okay. you would need to sl you would need to slash like thirty three percent of stake to. Okay, but so in within one to three seconds, this thing is just done. Like I I, I send you a payment, and we can just rest assured that the payment actually went through within a couple of exactly, seconds. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like so if most you people this use to one second uh, optimistic pretty much confirmation. So like it's already in the block, and like we have very little rollbacks. So in my mind, this seems like an enormous accomplishment. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it just when I think about how blockchains work and like what you would need to do technically to try to make that happen, like it's just not obvious to me that you. No, and, and so we we talked before about this, but yeah, like one of the things we've done, which not a lot of people know, we did a lot of work on on the networking stack to make sure that the nodes are like constantly actually connecting and optimizing the networking graph. So in a way, each node actually has a partial kind of graph of the network uh, available to them. It's actually cryptographically signed. And uh, where possible, where there are validators, it's actually their validator key is also like cross-signs the, like the node key, like the message passing key, to ensure that there's actually stake behind, so civil resistance stake behind the node. And so this allows to actually keep optimizing the network and creating direct routes between yeah. validators and between like RPC nodes to actually make the this connectivity and like block throughput faster. Yeah, I mean you're making the peer-to-peer -peer network actually much more peer-to-peer, -peer, right? And then it seems to me that like the civil resistance that you're talking about, right? Like if just having all these nodes talk to each other you know, and actually sign the messages to each other means that 
my, my guess is that then you can fight off denial of service attacks much better. And the system would be a lot more resilient if, say, like a state actor tried to attack the network and tried to take it down. Is that right? Or? Exactly, yeah. I mean, the, the biggest thing for me, like, this is a huge tangent, but I think Kademlia tables are misused right now in peer-to-peer -peer stacks of a lot of the blockchains because Kademlia table is uh, information retrieval, not a kind of this... Uh, like management of the of the peer-to-peer -peer connectivity. And Sorry, so, what was that? About? So Kademlia tables. So Kademlia tables is like a distributed hash table. Oh, yeah, okay. uh, for networks. And so, uh, so it's used, for example, for IPFS to retrieve content, right? Yeah. And it's that's a right usage. But then all the peer-to-peer -peer libraries, like in Ethereum and others, use it as well to find peers. Okay. And so the challenge there is it's actually really easy to overwhelm. And like there's actually known papers on Ethereum like from a couple of years ago where they found that like with two computers you can actually like create eclipse attacks on nodes, right? Oh, that's not great. And like they fixed it, like there's okay, fixes yeah. around that, but like it's all kind of patches. It's not a conceptually fixed. So and conceptual fix a lot of it is leveraging the you know the, the ledger we have, which is you know the yeah. civil resistance around stake civil resistance around accounts, all this information that we have to actually like leverage it on a network stack as well. And so like almost nobody, like at least I've never seen anyone using the ledger level information at the networking stack. And so we've been- Yeah, I haven't heard of that either. That's why when you described it to me the other day, I was like, that's interesting. Because yeah, it, it seems very unusual. But it makes sense because like we have extra information to, to improve the like right. both connectivity and uh, kind of, yeah, DDoS protection, Eclipse protection. And yeah. like, why wouldn't we do it? Well, so yeah, so you know, as I learn more about Near, I, I like it more and more. And a lot of what I keep encountering is that sort of at each layer of the system, it seems like the developers have been paying a lot of attention to how to make it sort of, you know, technically very sound, very, you know, resilient, uh, and then also like usable by people for a lot of use cases and usable by developers. Um, and this is an example. Of that. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty technical point, right? But I think it speaks to the general attitude of Nier of like, you know, even at this level of like, okay, how are the validator nodes talking to each other? It's like, well, you know, what information do you have available that you can bring to bear to like make sure that it will resist a state attack by a state, something like that. I, I like that. I think it's very cool. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I want to say. Yeah, I mean, it. it's a lot of work. There's a huge team of people, really smart people, pretty yeah. much trying to think at. And, and so our background, right, is in uh, programming competitions. And so in programming okay. competitions, uh, you have two, two sets of uh, kind of two tasks. One is you try to solve really hard algorithmical problem. And then in some competitions, you actually try to break the other person's solution of this problem. Yeah. And so that's kind of the mindset our team has in many ways is how like somebody comes up with a solution and then everybody else is trying to break it. <laughs> that's cool. And so that means it's a very rough environment, but yeah, like, hostile work but, environment. but the, be the best solutions win. And it also allowed us, like, so we actually built five different consensus algorithms. Really? Yeah, so we built Hashgraph, we built Avalanche back before uh, they actually had released anything. Okay. Uh, we built three of our own consensuses as well. And uh, part of it was, like, we built, like, Hashgraph is actually, it's good consensus, but uh, it's very slow, it doesn't scale, it, like, and we like really practically like built it, you know, experimented with it, saw it doesn't work, tried to optimize it. Um, with some of the like uh, original Avalanche paper, like there there was some you know potential issues that you can do. We have actually source code and the block. Yeah, Avalanche, the, you can have issues with um, 
With liveness, pretty much, yeah. You can, yeah. You can, you can like, keep it in method-stable state, yeah. yeah. I remember reading that paper and thinking it was cool, but like, wait, how do you address, how do you address the yeah, liveness? So, so, so they have ways to resolve it now, but okay. like, yeah, so in the original paper, there was like some of the kind of oversight on that, or like some you know, uh, places yeah. to attack. Uh, we, we've uh, also like had uh, uh, found an issue with Solana before mainnet as well. They fixed it. So like okay. we've been also like, and we've had this uh, whiteboard series where we interviewed other founders and uh, the technical researchers on the protocols to really dive in and exactly how their algorithm is built to really both for our understanding, for audience understanding, and also challenging them to find like where exactly things are working or not working. Yeah. So we've been trying to be kind of both you know, positive to the ecosystem, as well as be ourselves like the experts in all, all of the stack to ensure, A, we build the best stuff, but B, actually like we continue advancing this field, uh, broadly speaking, right? And that's, I mean, yeah. uh, to, to kind of come in on your side, I think it's exciting for you to also talk about, for near developers who will be watching, right, about Orbit, because I think that's a, like a, a new exciting piece of stack in this decentralized, uh, Web3 ecosystem. The one thing I keep repeating actually that Web3 is not just about blockchains, right? It's a lot also about on-edge compute and on-edge um, infrastructure, which we need to actually continue pushing this vision of you know self-ownership of owning your assets and data. And uh, I think like Orbit is really kind of playing a big role in this, and that's why it's exciting to both be here in the partnership we're doing together. But yeah, would love for you to kind of. You know, for the near developers uh, and the people who are in the room to, you know, yeah. give a download on that. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm always happy to talk about Urban. <laughs> the uh, and I can I can give do one of my many attempts to explain it. Um, the uh, the basic idea of Urban is that it's a new conception of computing, where each person runs their own personal server, uh, and then those personal servers communicate with each other in a peer-to-peer -peer manner. And then why this is good, it's good for a number of reasons, but one of the big ones is that uh, ideally a lot of these centralized services that we use right now can be replaced. And instead of having one server run by a big company, I run my server, you run your server, our servers communicate peer to peer, and we don't need a central point of failure, we don't need some company that needs to try to extract you know, information from you. And one of the big things I think is that um, there's a fundamental conflict of interest that these companies have, right? Because uh, you know, they are trying to provide a service on one hand, but the only way that they can make enough money to actually run all their servers and keep the lights on is by extracting information for ads and also trying to get you as addicted to the platform as possible. And you talk to most sort of normal people and they're not very happy with how much time they spend on their phones. Right? And like, you know, if somebody brings up TikTok or Instagram, like what do you think of? Do you think of like somebody scrolling forever, right? Uh, and most people don't really want that, but that's, that's kind of the internet we live in. It's not easy to get out of that and then still have good social functionality and good ability to kind of or organize bottom-up and all these sorts of things. So yeah, so with Urbit, the idea is you don't need any of those services to be done by a central server. I can run my little piece of that myself, you run your little piece of it yourself, and that's all we need. And so yeah, I also think that that's very complementary to blockchains. Right? And the big difference between Urbit and a blockchain, I get asked this a lot. Right, what's the difference between Urbit and a blockchain? And my general answer is that with a blockchain, uh, all of the nodes participating in the blockchain, everybody stores the same data. So a blockchain is a way to get everyone to agree on the same data, the same state. Uh, and in contrast with Urbit, uh, every Urbit node has a different set of data. And so I have a, you know, my Urbit node 
is storing just my data, yours is storing just yours. And so they're all different. Um, what do you think of that explanation? Yeah, no, I, exactly. I think the kind of moving forward in the future, server or not, but our data should you know, continue living on, on the user side, right? And you, know, you need some ways to you know, access it on your phone, on your laptop. You want to have secure backups of it. Uh, it needs to be encrypted and kind of in, in, a, in a way that only you are able to access it. And also compute should come to you, right? Instead of the services and in data kind of living in, the, in you know, the centralized place, the kind of the service comes to you and runs it on your data. And yeah. So that's very similar kind of the concept we are in, being introduced in this blockchain operating system. It's really going kind of above just layer one and uh, kind of realizing, you know, in Web3, a lot of the uh, kind of applications, although the kind of smart contracts are decentralized, but the rest of stack still lives in a centralized server. And actually all the logs, all the information, everything is still actually goes through a centralized stack, right? And so we're not starting to push kind of decentralization to the rest of stack, including some front ends and making them available, rendering them on the user side, uh, allowing pretty much uh, if like user to you know retrieve the pieces of you know front end and application that they need bypassing any of the central kind of uh, web server as well yeah. and uh, you know pretty much limiting what tracking you can have limiting what kind of access these things have and and allowing pretty much user be in control of what they're accessing but also be in control of like but if tomorrow developer decides to like you remember like Uniswap tomorrow, like Uniswap Labs, a company can tomorrow decide to put a huge ad banner on Uniswap.com, and you cannot do anything with that, right? right? Well, there was already, this problem already happened though, right? I mean, last year with Tornado Cash and yeah, the sanction, Cur Cur right? Curve got hacked. Curve front and got hacked. Like it's a centralized server that got hacked, and so everybody who was going to Curve was actually accessing a malicious code running, yeah. and they wouldn't even know, right? And that that just shows like how like not cryptographically secure the whole stack is. Yeah, I mean, I'm really not happy that I have all these, I, have, I don't know, hundreds of logins to different services, just because I live on the internet. You know? And each one of those services is storing my password, some of them store my credit card information, some of them store my birth date and other personal information. There's nothing I can do to force them to have good security practices, and a lot of them don't. And then, you know, your passwords get compromised in a breach, just like everybody else's. I mean, how many hundreds of millions of people have had a password compromise from some, even like a large site, Equifax, the like, this I mean, credit my, card my one password always say like, my, this many, you know, websites were compromised. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't have to be this way, right? So I feel like most people don't know that, you know, with private public key cryptography, there's no, there's no need for a, a service to actually store my like secret credentials. They could store my public key. Yeah, and, and, and I can prove that. And I use my private key to, to log in, and you know everything in crypto works this way, and except for you know Coinbase and other centralized services. But you know the <laughs> but the sort of real like you know decentralized systems like the sort of cryptographically based systems like blockchains or Urbit, you know that, that's that's sort of laughed out of the room immediately as like a way for this to work. But yet that's that's still where we are. And and by the way, devices now have cryptography embedded on the device. So we just rolled out recently FastAuth which uses cryptography on device to generate the uh, public, like private public key. Private key is sec stored securely on the chip inside the device. Okay. It's like you need, like I don't even know how like humanly possible to get it out of there. 
yeah. without like and, and so it's biometrically secure so face ID fingerprint or if you don't have that pin code and doing that you can start signing transactions now and so we have a full flow where you face ID you log in you know we have email recovery like if you want to you can also remove it um, but it like allows you to now have this and don't need password your device is your kind of uh, access you can have to sec multiple factors of authentication if you want to as well. And That's so you really can nice. all, all do this while it also be fully cryptographic, right? And, yeah. And I mean that sounds a lot nicer than sort of I log in with my MetaMask and then I go to a <laughs> yeah I have a seed phrase I log in with the MetaMask I, you know I, yeah, it so doesn't work I refresh the cache I, you know. So somebody mentioned like uh, there was a there was some hackathon Ethereum hackathon where like some of the people built on Near and when people compared it felt like the Ethereum uh, kind of examples were a MetaMask showcase because like every single action you need to go and like click in MetaMask yeah. and on near you authorize once and then you have like a session key inside the app and you can just like interact with the app and so like that those are kind of things that like you know I, and uh, to be clear like Ethereum is figuring out there's ab account abstraction there's like paymasters there's a bunch of stuff coming yeah. so like we like we're all kind of converging to the same solutions but generally speaking that's what we're focusing on like how do we create this experience to the end user such that it feels like it's Web2. Yeah. And ideally it's better than Web2 because you don't have passwords, you don't have data stolen, you, you have your data accessible to any application, right? So the example would be, you know, you have the social network, you go through one of the gateways, yeah. you have your social network there, you go to another gateway which is for work, and you have social network, your social graph there as well because it's your social graph, not LinkedIn or Facebook right. social graph, right? So, like that, and again, like Urbit here can be storing a lot of the private social graph parts yeah. that you know you can then plug in into a specific. That's really where Urbit shines, right there. Yeah, and so so I think like that is where we should be going, right? Like I think you know one of the questions like what is the vision for this in in a you know in five, ten, twenty years? Yeah. And the reality is like like it's not going to be the the there's this like big companies providing services. It's going to be a lot of open source software that you can be like loading up, the open source software is cryptographically secured, it's audited, it's insured, cryptographically insured as well, such that if something happens, there's a way to get like a recovery so that you don't have these hacks constantly happening that are like uh, financially uh, devastating. And yeah. At the same time, all the user data will be sitting on your, uh, on your device in kind of, uh, you know, Urbit and, and uh, in decentralized storage, allowing you to interact with your applications in any way you want, and having this like composability between all of them that you know we kind of seen glimpse of like back in like 2010 when Facebook like had an API. Back when they like, had an API. Yeah, and then like they shut it down and like you know threw a bunch of businesses out of the like out oh, of billions business. of dollars. Yeah, and so that's kind of where we're going with all this, right? And that's what we're powering and the. Now we just need to make this last bit of experience working. Yeah. And I think like we all kind of together right now converging on that state. And uh, yeah, I'm excited kind of to see more and more of the of the now business use cases. You know, everything from uh, you know financial, but also like your productivity tooling moving to that direction and really enabling it uh, yeah. to the end user. Yeah, I think it's interesting because this is this is also what we're trying to do with Urban, right? Because the idea of a personal server goes back forever. It's at least as old as the internet, right? Because the idea originally was that the way you'd use the internet was from a personal server, maybe you'd live in your house. You know, the cloud didn't really exist back then. But in the 90s, people had some concept of like, all right, well, there's an email protocol, and it's peer-to-peer, -peer, and uh, you know, my computer will send a message to your computer, and that's how, that's how things will work. And then it turned out that it's really hard to run a personal server, and nobody wants to do it. 
And if you ask a sysadmin to run a personal server, he'll say, yeah, okay, pay me $150,000 a year and I'll do it. Um, and the, uh, so it's also, it's like, yeah, the, the problem isn't that it's sort of technically utterly infeasible to do that. It's just practically infeasible because it's such a pain because there's so much complexity. There's so many layers of software and you have to understand so many concepts. This crypto is a very similar problem, right? Like, okay, well, there's this key, there's a bridge, there's this chain, there's this wall, there's a lot of different new concepts for people. And even for technical people, you're like, you know, I work in this field and I get confused sometimes. And so I think the, with Urbit, we're trying to make a personal server that's simple enough that it's people, normal people can just use it and they don't have to understand all, you know, all the technical stuff that I babble on about all the time, right? Like, they shouldn't have to know any of that. And so, yeah, it's, it's also a usability problem. Now, our, you know, the urban thesis is that to fix the usability problem for personal servers, you have to go way down the stack. Um, and so that's, you know, that's our approach, is we, we build everything from machine code, programming language, operating system, network protocol, applications, everything, right? Um, but the, uh, but yeah, I do think that that's, um, you do, we do need this personal server component, and we need blockchains, and we may need some other components, too. For sure, yeah. I mean, I think like decentralized storage, decentralized CDN, like we need few of these pieces, especially to build like high performance, you know, video streaming and stuff like this. Like th those yeah. are, you know, still a little bit away, but I think like the interesting, like I'm really excited about having, you know, Google Calendar and like product management tooling, project management tooling, and like uh, reserve, like uh, that's, a, that, yeah. that's the first call we had. I'm like, Google Calendar, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> let's replace that. <laughs> there is UCAL, yeah, 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 Urban exactly. Project to build a calendar. And yeah, it should be better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, like, it should be better than Google Calendar eventually, right? Uh, calendars, I think, are actually pretty difficult things to build well. It is, but, but I think that that's like, calendars really, like, especially like for people, for like, uh, you know, business people, it's like, that's where everything starts, right? And so, like, around that, you can start building out all the other tooling. Yeah. But uh, if, like, if we all locked in into kind of using, you know, Google with that, it's like, it yeah. continues being a challenge. Yeah, I mean, um, if you store your documents in Google Cloud, they might decide they don't like that document and they might just delete it. Or they might decide that, I, I, you know, they can make any decision they want, it's just not yours, right? Uh, so interestingly, yeah, I think that, so Near has some projects around this, and I think Urbit does too. Uh, so within Urbit, there's a, there's a company called Holium that's building a, uh, really like a desktop environment that they call Realm. And so the idea is you run it, it's, you run it as an app on macOS, and, um, uh, but within that, it, it feels sort of like a desktop or like a browser, but uh, you have different workspaces, one for each Urbit group that you're in. And they have their own conception of what a group is. Uh, and then within each space, there's like an automatic uh, shared audio call that everyone's in. You can collaborate on documents together. You can send chat messages. And the idea is that this is extensible, so anyone can just write a new app that uses this framework and uses the, you know, the Urbit backend framework and the front-end framework. And then you know, when you write that app, then it, it has all these features that get plugged in. They also have a wallet and a browser and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, Talon also, the oldest company involved in Urbit, uh, you know, they have a, their, their other groups group and chat suite, but that has uh, blogging and forum type stuff built in. Also intended to be extensible with new, new sort of channel types. So that, and what's interesting about both of these is that they're, you know, you see the Web3 here with the permissionless extensibility, right? It's like, there's nobody who gets to say whether or not that plugin is allowed to happen, right? Like, like Signal, the, comp the foundation, right? They want to have payments in Signal, but they ran into regulatory problems, is my understanding. So they have MobileCoin, they work with MobileCoin, but they can only do that in some countries, not in others. 
I don't even know, you know exactly the full story there, right? But, but this, is a, this is a story that happens over and over again. If you, if you have to ask somebody for permission to like, make a plugin or make a different client for Twitter, a different client for Facebook, right? Then you know, often you don't get that permission and then everyone suffers. Well, and remember that it, that service also can just disappear. Yeah. I think like one of the things that like a lot of people in Web3 use Notion. And Notion can just shut down and like all the content will go down. Like yeah. it's it's a startup. Right. And then <laughs> I mean, it's no, interesting because some some of these startups or some of these companies are aware of this problem. You know, Facebook to their credit lets you export all your data. Uh, actually, one of my friends was just saying that it's 10 terabytes if you actually export it. Well, m mine was, I think, 10 gigabytes. Okay. I did it five years ago. I, I deleted my Facebook. I deleted. It's marked, it is deleted, yeah, yes, right. in a database on Facebook. Yeah, they, they flipped the bit. Yeah. yeah. But, the, um, well, but one thing that's interesting about it, and this is you know, often how we pitch Urbit, is to say, like, okay, you can download this data from Facebook. Right? So theoretically, you can exit Facebook to something else. But actually... You know, if I download my data from Facebook and you download yours, we can't find each other. Like we, the, that social connection that's really the value of having Facebook in the first place is not reconstructable just from the data. Uh, and so this really goes to the point of like, you know, it's not just data, like just data on its own uh, is not really useful. You have to have also, you also have to have a program that knows how to operate on that data. Right, so with Urbit, in contrast, like if somebody shuts down a group that I'm in, I still have all the group data, including the members, the Urbit addresses of all the members who are in that group. And so I can just kind of reinflate that if I want, or anybody else can. And also the data is still there. But you know, that social connection is still there. And, right, and this is also, you know, if, you're, if you're a publisher, you're publishing something on Substack or Patreon, something like that, that's your business. Right? That's your livelihood is like that email list. And uh, you know, Substack has done a good job with this, right, where they actually let the, the authors keep their own email lists. And this is part of the reason that those authors like Substack so much is because they know that Substack doesn't have that kind of kill switch on them. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, we, we've been working on more the public side of social, right? So we have Near Social, which is kind of a Twitter-like alternative where the graph, like, you know, is on, on chain and it allows users to kind of control it. And the benefit of that is more composability where you can... You know, you can embed that graph into this wallet or that application into, you know, your yeah. calendar, right? Can fetch that data and show you, you know, like if friends allowed to share like their information, that allows to kind of have this connectivity and discoverability. But that's not, you know, it's decentralized, it's stored on chain and controlled by you, not by anyone else. And so, yeah. and that's what I'm saying. Like the next step is adding private data that's like stored on on the on the user side right. and enabling that kind of extension beyond that. Yeah, and intuitively it seems like you know, most of the private data, you really want to store that in your own Urbit exactly. with some replications, replication. Yeah, and so application, that's why you need application to render on the user side so it can merge the public data from right. blockchain and private data from Urbit server, from encrypted exactly. data stores, and really provide you the full behavior. Yeah. And that's where, you know, to the partnership side, right, yeah. like integrating kind of near like blockchain operating system gateways with Urbit is kind of this idea that we can actually start running the, this decentralized front end directly on your Urbit that can compose all this data in one place, right? Kind of unite all the identities and being able to interact and also share with others. Yeah, we'll see if I can describe BOS. Do you think it? You? Yeah, I'll see if I can do it. And you can correct me. <laughs> all right, so Nira is this project called Blockchain Operating System. And what it allows you to do is it allows you to store code on chain. And this is a pretty impractical to do on most chains, if I understand right. 
It's, I think it's impossible because the, lim the data limits on most blockchains wouldn't you wouldn't be able to fit more than like 32 kilobytes or something. So like, yeah, just... like I wouldn't just I just wouldn't try personally. Yeah, the, but the but you can just do this on near, um, and then the advantage of storing the code on chain is that you can store front end code on chain, right? So it's not just the code that's on the smart contracts that always lives on chain, but no matter which chain you're talking about. But if you store the front end, that means that you know, the code that actually runs in the user's browser, you can store that code on the chain. And that way, uh, there's no, this you know, reduces the possibility for someone to censor that front end. And this actually happened with, with the Tornado Cache situation. I believe it was Uniswap, right? They had a, a, a front end that would not let you submit certain transactions. So the blockchain itself, uncensorable effectively, um, or at least at that layer. But you know, the, the way that everybody was accessing that blockchain was through some website. And so the website you know, decided to censor transactions. And for most people, there wasn't a good way around this. And so effect, it's interesting, right? That, like, if you don't have this sort of censorship resistance at all the different layers of the stack, all the different like, pieces of code that are running on everybody's uh, computers, then at any one of those points, that can be interdicted, and then you get censored. And this is what happens. So what you need is this like a full stack solution, like what you're developing, where there's code on the layer one blockchain. Right? And then there's also, you need some sort of decentralized system to send that code down to browsers, because browsers generally can't access sort of uh, blockchain nodes directly. Not yet. Yeah. They should. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, well, how are you? we'll get to that in a second, because uh, that's interesting. But, the, uh, but so at least for the moment, you, what you need is uh, what uh, BOS called gateways, where a gateway is just some server that uh, reads the data off the chain. We'll read this front end code off the chain. Hey, uh, and so it'll read the front end code off the chain, and then it'll it'll download it uh, into your browser, and you run it there. And so that way, as long as you can find one one of these gateways that's willing to uh, send you this code down, you know, you somebody would have to censor all of those gateways in order to prevent you from getting it. And this is a very different situation from just having one website that everybody goes yeah, to. Yeah, and, and importantly, it's, like, it's all cryptographic, so you can verify that what you received is actually was published by you know, your Uniswap DAO, for example. Because right now, again, Uniswap.com is run by Uniswap Labs, which is not really Uniswap DAO, just a, pro, like, a separate for-profit company. And like, they publish in front end, you know, which may, not, may or may not be the one, like, they can get hacked, like, you don't know, right? So, like, you don't have the provenance, you don't have the yeah. cryptographic proofs that this is actually, you're interacting with the right thing. Yeah, people call this a, you know, software supply chain security, right? And it's just a huge problem throughout, not just crypto, but throughout the world, right? Like, there have been all kinds of things where, you know, somebody is putting together an application that they're sending down to users, and the way they put together that application is that they cobble together code from thousands of different sources. And then one of those sources gets, gets you know, hijacked, and they publish malicious code, and that malicious code makes it into the system, which then gets published down to everybody. Uh, so this is, this is just a huge problem in general because software is so big. And so you have, to, you have to bring together code from so many different sources in general. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a problem that you really see in crypto because you know, this is that, kind of, that kind of software supply chain uh, attack has also been used a number of times to just swindle people out of money directly. So you can really kind of see it. Yeah, exactly. And then, but then on the flip side, what we see as well is because this kind of changes the development paradigm, right? You're going from like, hey, I'm going to build a website, I'm going to control everything, and this is going to be my thing, right? Which is the normal world right now. And, yeah. and it, 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 
very naturally fits with this idea of, and I'm going to take everybody's data, and you're going to be my user, and everything this, to really changing the paradigm and saying, actually, I'm just publishing software, right? Similarly, how you go to GitHub, you just publish software, you know, somebody will use it, somebody will find it. And here saying, hey, here's, a compo here's parts of the UI. Here is, you know, some Uniswap. Uh, I mean, we, we keep using this example, but like, here's a swapping component, right? Yeah. And then somebody's like, oh, I really want to build a swap, but I actually want a social swap. I want people chatting while they're actually doing this. So they take your component, they take the social part, they mix it together, they ship it. It took them about two minutes because, like, you know, you just wrote like a few lines of JSX, and boom, it's published. And now, you know, you can embed that thing already directly on a social feed because, again, everything is a component. You can embed them into each other. Yeah. And so now all your friends just seen it because you just posted it on your social feed. They start playing with it. They're like, oh, I like this. How, do, how is this implemented? They take a look at the source code, which is on the blockchain. They're like, yeah. oh, this is really cool. You know what? I don't like swapping this DeFi bullshit. Let me try actually to use social for my other application about, you know, for example, writing documents for the communities, right? And so the idea here is like the discovery of things you can do. Like, yeah. remember back in like when HTML was just starting? And everybody was just like, click, right click and inspect code. And like, oh, this is cool. I'll just copy some code and use it in my thing. Yeah. Like, you get that effect, but like with real rich like UIs. And what in turn allows you to do really to build faster. Like, we've seen people building like three times faster than they normally would. Like, build, you know, somebody just posted on Twitter, like, hey, I like done with quarter of my backlog in yeah. 10 hours, right? Right. And then like somebody else like, hey, I just saw some really cool thing and asked my developer and he introduced it in one minute. Like literally just ported yeah. that thing into his own UI. Right? And so like that kind of thing is starting to happen, but it fits into this idea that it's not your application that like tries to gather all the stuff. It's actually like applications belong to all the users and the users kind of, you know, accessing it and plugging in data yeah. into a specific application. And so that's a mindset change, right, again, that fits really well with Urbit and kind of this open web philosophy that we're all trying to do. And like yeah, that's we talk about this a lot in Urbit. Yeah. And one of the things we talk about, actually, is that that should be easier as a developer. It should be easier to build a decentralized application than a centralized one. Uh, for one thing, you don't have to do you know, GDPR compliance and all this other stuff. You're not storing other people's data, which is generally something you have to be really careful about. Um, but then also, yeah, you should get this composability where you can take one component, another component, stick them together, make a new program, uh, which is, you know, you'd think you'd be able to do this, and you can, but it normally takes a lot of money and time to do that in production, right? So, so to do that in a way where, like, you're publishing an app, and you're running a company, and you want to actually integrate various services together, and you want that to work for everybody and stay working, like, you have to pay to do that. It's a, each time you need to take, stick two things together, that's glue. You have to maintain the glue. You have to pay somebody to maintain the glue. And that, what that means is that you end up with just a lot less of it than there really should be. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much you publish code, like, you know, any gateway that now runs it, right? For whatever reason, right? Somebody runs it for profit. Somebody runs it on their orbit. Somebody runs it inside their, on their desktop, right? Now can access to this. And, like, it renders on their side. You don't need to have the middleware. Right, there's, I mean, there's still obviously validator nodes, et cetera, but then that gets handled now by the blockchain infrastructure. And so that kind of, yeah, as you said, like really going away from like, hey, I don't need to handle any of the scaffolding. I don't need to handle any of the hosting, at least initially, unless you want to run your own gateway. And you can start really quickly. And 
you can leverage this idea that all those users now can have access to it, right? Instead of like, you publish it in your corner, you create a Twitter account and you scream into the void, you're now like, hey, all the users everywhere now have access to it easily. They logged in already, they already, yeah. you know, authorized, all of their data is already there. Like the, the kind of, the diff from going to like, imagine you go to a new social network and like, I don't know anyone, I need to log in, I need to a new password, I need to figure out who this is, I need to figure out if they steal my data later. Here, yeah. like, somebody can launch new, you know, social network on top of this existing social graph, publish it on the existing social feed, which, yep. by the way, doesn't say, like, hey, you cannot post about, you know, any other alternative social networks. Uh, and then, right. you know, people can start using it right away and, like, already kind of logged in with all of their data, right? So, yeah. so there's just, like, everything from development to getting initial usage and traction is, like, so much more simplified because of this change of paradigm. Yeah. Yeah, and we see this in Urbit, too. Uh, so one example is the app called Portal. There's a new Urbit app, and it integrates data from a bunch of your other apps. So. There's an Urban app called Pals that most people use. It's just a very simple contacts app. But I'm just storing you know, a lot of other people's Urban addresses, and I can tag them with how I know them and whatnot. Um, but that's used for sort of gossip-like social discovery quite a bit in Urban. And so Portal uses that to discover. So if I'm hosting a group, then my pals hear about that through Portal. Um, so Portal is reading from, these, from the pals data and from groups and collating that data and saying, OK, hey, you know, like, uh, this guy's publishing this group, he's hosting this group. This person's publishing this app, this person is publishing, here are these blog posts, so I just you know, clicked a button and it linked all my blog posts. Uh, right? And that's the kind of composability, like from a user perspective, that just feels really nice. And people often talk about WeChat being like this. Yeah, so we kind of call it like, I mean, conceptually it's an open WeChat platform yeah. as well, yeah. Because so WeChat is almost an operating system in itself. It has media apps, it has finance, it has yeah. social, it has all of the interactions, identity there. And yeah, so we, you know, in many ways going after it, but in an open way, in composable way, in kind of extensible way, and also in, in private way. Yeah, which actually brings me back to uh, the uh, BOS, the blockchain operating system. And so what we're doing with Urbit right now is making it so that your Urbit can be your own gateway, right? So, to, so, so that basically all I need to access data from the near chain uh, and, and front ends to use the near chain is just my own Urbit, which itself can talk directly to the chain. So I don't rely on anybody else. So there's just an Urbit app. I install it like any other Urbit app and I click install. And then uh, that can just pull down any front end data, uh, like any front end code uh, for any... Uh, for anything. I mean, it's not yeah. just, so it's not just near applications. It's, we already have Ethereum, we just announced ZKEVM partnership. But you also build, you can build Web2 applications. People have built, yeah. you know, integrations with ChatGPT. Really? It, it's faster to build. It's period faster to build. It's not like right. you need to build Web3. Well, it's almost like serverless, right? It's, it's sort of like it's, Amazon it's, Lambda. It's serverless, but like for front ends, right? Yeah. It's, it's pretty much what smart contracts did for web, web services. We're doing that for front ends, right? Yeah. For, on that layer. There's a lot of middleware as well, just to mention which need to power that, right? Because the data that you need to pull in from public chain not always organized in the exact way, so you need you know, ways to query it. Yeah, so you have like a, yeah. a system of indexers that literally Index, Yeah, you need decentralized it. indexers, which are protocols as well. You need you know, meta transactions, so the users don't need to break their hat figuring out how to pay for fees, right? Yeah. You need like, all these pieces really need to play together as one system. Right. But it's the same thing when you use your like, you know, mobile phone, 
there is drivers, there is you know services, there is like updaters, all of the stuff happening, and you just you know pulling in and like clicking on your app and you know scrolling yeah. through a TikTok, right? Yeah, you're looking at the tip of the iceberg, and there's this yeah. huge substructure underneath that. Yeah. The um, well, one thing to switch topics a little bit. Uh, one thing that I've been interested in for about two years now. Some somehow I just got thinking about um, a lot of Web2 systems, and a lot of those big companies are um, something like a marketplace. So you have something like Uber, uh, Airbnb, you know, Amazon Fulfillment, and all the merchants, all, the, all that stuff. Um, and you have you know, Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist. And then even Google Search, you can kind of think, this, think of this way, where you have people publishing listings, and then people going to the listings. So you know, when I think about like what are people using in Web two, like what's the kind of the modern internet stack? Like what are what are people interacting with? A lot of this is, has the same sort of shape, right? And the, there are people publishing listings. There are people who want to like access those listings, use them. And uh, I think it's very interesting to think about what would it take to make those so that neither, none of those are you know proprietary, centralized, closed source, uh, Web two. Uh, systems and what would it take to turn those into Web3, right? So what does that look like? What technologies are required? Or do we need social, cultural changes to make that happen? Can we even make this happen? So I, I think that we can and we will, uh, but I think that this is actually a minority opinion within Web3. Yeah, so it, it is probably a minority opinion right now, but so I, I, we were just talking about it before. So back in the day when Satoshi was writing Bitcoin code still, there, there is actually a file called market.h, which contains source code for a marketplace embedded directly in Bitcoin code. There was a way to list products, leave reviews, and do few like orders pretty much of products directly inside Bitcoin. So Satoshi originally wasn't just planning to build a you know, financial system, financial payment system. He wanted to use it in actually buying real world stuff. And so, yeah, I didn't know that. I had no idea until you showed it to me. Yeah, so, uh, and so I, I found out just like a few months ago, and I was, because I was also thinking about exactly the same thing. I'm like, hey, especially when, the, when this like choke point thing in US started. And I'm like, yeah. hey, so imagine it's in US, like, it's probably like, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in crypto people have. And let's say they shut down all of the like Coinbase and all the on-ramps, off-ramps. Yeah. So you have all these people with crypto not be able to spend it or withdraw it. Well, the thing that makes sense is to be able to buy stuff with crypto. Be able to what? To buy stuff. You should be able to go yeah. in the store and say, hey, I want to buy food for USDT or you know, Bitcoin or whatever. Yeah. Right? And so that's where I started my research. I'm like, well, okay, how do we do that? And so the, there's few things that you need to do. Well, first of all, I mean, we need like software to do listings, etc. But this is actually the easiest part. The you know, actually creating marketplace code and like doing that effectively. You know, for example, a near very effective. You know, one second finality, all easy. That's not where the hard part is. The hard part is uh, actually in trust and safety. Okay. Because the first, the the second thing will happen after you launch it will be all the illegal stuff will get listed there. Yeah. And so then all the people will start going after it, trying to shut it down. This is yeah. where you need decentralized products, server, personalized servers to be able to access it, and pretty much being able to bypass a lot of the kind of choke points of the current infrastructure. And still, you know, personally, I don't want to, you know, show to everyone 
all the malicious stuff that people are trying to do, right? So yeah. we actually invest a lot in what we call trust and safety framework, which allows community governance, which allows communities to actually select what they don't think is safe. And you as a user can self-select into a community moderation. You can say yeah, like, hey. So, just, so you do, yeah, right. You want moderation, you just don't want it to be centralized moderation, right? Exactly, Each community yeah. to do its own yeah. moderation, yeah. And so, so ideally, yeah, you want your, you as individuals say, hey, I believe in this group, for example, do, like in their ideals and their way of doing it, they're doing it transparently. When they are moderating something, they're actually leaving a comment and you know, they, they can be disputed. And so I'm gonna self-select into the system and now it just applies a filter on top of my view so that right. I don't need to see all the disturbing stuff that you know, humans have, right? And that's the reality. It's like, but the thing is, what disturbing is actually different from jurisdiction, from people, right? Like for example, in Amsterdam, all of the drugs are legal. And so, you know, the marketplace that, you know, in Amsterdam will be completely legal, will be completely illegal in US, for example, right? Yeah. So having this applied filter is important, but it needs to be community driven. It needs to be defined by the community itself and individuals opting it in. And if they don't, don't believe in, in the government and in the laws they, of the countries they're living in, well, maybe they should change the country, but they can use, for example, urban server and like, choose a different alternative community uh, moderation. And that's why like, gateways themselves can pretty much select which moderation system they use. And users can inspect that in a transparent way and understand how it works. So that is really important pieces. Like, we need decentralized front-ends, we need community moderation, we need search, which uh, part of blockchain operating system as well. We need effective marketplaces, which one of the things we actually have is called Orderly, which is off-chain order book, uh, on-chain settlement, uh, which allows to have like way more effective, for example, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, transaction, uh, and like it settles every second. So it's, like, it's actually better than centralized exchange in result, because you're on-chain one second, and all the assets belong to you, right? It's self-custodial, but you get the performance and kind of uh, execution like speed of centralized exchange. Yeah, that sounds like a good point in the trade-offs. So, so all of these pieces need to come together, and now we can have a product, and then, then the, the actual hard part starts. Hard part is getting people out of Amazon. Yeah. Right? Like, they need to have an incentive to now switch, because outside of st buying stuff that is not on Amazon, which will be illegal stuff, uh, like there's right now not as much incentive to switch. So you need to find niches where there is important products that people want to buy peer-to-peer, -peer, or you need places where people are crypto-rich crypto pretty much and don't want to off-ramp and want to buy from you know, somebody who's like, willing to accept crypto. So you need to find the niche products to start, and then as people get any more kind of uh, habit to using it, then you can scale into more like generic stuff. Yeah, so is the... Um so if somebody you, wants to build you, a startup, by the way, right. let me know. <laughs> so well, yeah. So do, what you know, if you if you had to suddenly switch jobs and build a you know, marketplace, what would you sell? You know. Uh, well, so it it really depends, but I think um, I mean the the cool things you can start selling is like, for example, urban service, right? Like yeah. people who want to buy with crypto, and you can you know sell them urban service directly and ship them. Yeah, digital services in general seem a lot easier for this sort of thing. Your server, but like you want to start finding what are the physical things that are hard to to acquire right now and kind of deliver them. But like, and you and you want to see what are the people who have a lot of crypto are interested in. So you would do go, you know, you should go and do some research on that and and figure out what are the what are those like, um, you know, 
like I'm sure there is like some niche of I like of, of things that are potentially it's like some services actually maybe not the uh, not the goods first right so so that's right. kind of the you know maybe it's ticketing maybe it's something else that like you need to find the uh, kind of product that you know people are interested in in buying with crypto yeah um, well we've only got a few minutes left um, one thing that you had mentioned to me. Uh, is that you said you wanted to have a Bitcoin VM in Nier. Can you describe what you mean by this? Sorry? You had said that you would want to have a Bitcoin VM in Nier. Can you describe what you mean by this? Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, Nier allows to run other blockchains on top of it. So other the, blockchains uh, what? On top of it. Okay. So, so we have a project called Aurora, which is an EVM, Ethereum virtual machine, running as a smart contract. So you can run a whole other blockchain as a smart contract on there. That's kind of how powerful, that's why you can store source code, right? You can do whatever you want. Like, it, the, the limits are, you know, I mean, there are limits, but they're not that big, and we're trying to push them every time. And so one of the cool ideas was is actually you can, you know, instead of forking, creating another fork of Bitcoin, trying to, you know, make blocks bigger or whatever, you can actually port Bitcoin VM on top of Near port's a state as well, and now you can have, it's a fork of Bitcoin, but it runs on near infrastructure. Uh, you can have better transactions, you, so you can, and you can pay pretty much transaction fees in this fork Bitcoin, and you can burn part of it. So you can actually start having a deflationary Bitcoin fork with way larger blocks and with the same state. So that's just like an example of something you can build on near. Yeah, I would call that a Galaxy brand idea. <laughs> So again, inviting someone, if somebody wants to build a cool project, <laughs> let me know. Yeah. I have a list somewhere of all of this yeah. crazy ideas, yeah. Yeah, I have, I have a few lists of crazy ideas for <laughs> Herbert too. The, um, I think it's important to maintain the crazy ideas. You know? At least for me, what, you know, when I'm involved in Herbert, most of my work is day-to-day, you know, -day, reviewing code, looking at pull requests, you know, and I think it's, it's good to have a, a big picture of where we're going. Totally agree, yeah. I mean, that's why like, I like to remind, you know, hey, we're, like, we're here to give all people control over their assets, data, power of governance. Okay, what does this mean, right? Assets, yeah, we're kind of getting there, but you know, still not there. Data, well, we need things like Orbit, we need more on-edge compute, we need a lot more things. Governance, we actually have Near Digital Collective, we're trying to, like, innovate and pioneer and try to figure out things. Now we need to make all of those things work together, right? Like yeah. marketplaces is actually data and assets together, right? Yeah. And you need governance for trust and safety, right? So you need to start making this like connections because right now, hey, you have assets, but then no governance, it's going crazy, you know, people getting hacked, like how do we fix that, right? So I think like, like continue looking at vision, but then bringing it down to like, what are the things that are broken and how can we bring some of those pieces together and address them? Yeah. Well, we're here for it. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Talk yeah, to me. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me here. It's great to be here. And I'm, I'm excited to you know, have more and more kind of integrations with, between Orbit and Near. Me too. Thank you.